contents of this episode includes topics that cover separation abuse and legal abuse, as well as violence against women and potentially bestiality. It's not suitable for children under 18. So after I left him, he made a formal complaint to the Iowa Board of Nursing. So I had to go and sit in front of the Iowa Board and answer to everything that he said I did. There was um, a HIPAA concern because I looked at his files, which I was consulting, so whatever. Um, there was a, an accusation that I was guilty of bestiality. There was, there's like six things. The number one thing that stands out is he said that I cut the GPS locator off of my state car. I left that office, I drove to our state garage, went to the mechanic and said, tell me my GPS is working. He in fact told me my GPS was gone. They looked back. My GPS was disabled in October. So he took that GPS off my car in October. I don't even know where the damn thing is. I wouldn't know how to take the thing off. So this was before we got married that he cut this locator off. That was Heather, Jim's fourth wife. Extracting yourself from an abusive relationship is difficult even when you have an incredible support system and everything falls in place. But with Jim, he makes every effort to interfere with, manipulate, and threaten other aspects of your life that make it much more difficult to leave. And with Heather, you can see he tried to get her nursing license taken away. It's a form of coercive control, post-separation abuse. Colleen, do you want to tell us what legal abuse and post-separation abuse are? Yeah, so there are some kinds of abuse that are so covert and misunderstood even now that we're just as a society starting to build a language to even talk about them. And two of the types that are particularly prevalent in Jim's cases are legal abuse, also called litigation abuse, and um, the second one is post-separation abuse, or also called separation abuse. So firstly, legal abuse in domestic violence relationship refers to instances where the abuser is using the legal system to manipulate or exert control over their victim. And this can range from frivolous filings of lawsuits, protective orders, falsely accusing the victim of crimes, Uh, manipulating custody agreements or arrangements, and potentially withholding financial support. The abuser can use legal means to further isolate the victim from friends and family, such as by falsely obtaining protective orders or making false complaints to government agencies. Like in our state, it's called DHS, like making child custody or saying that you're not parenting your child appropriately. Right. And then the second one, post-separation abuse, is particularly in domestic violence relationship where the abuse continues after the victim leaves. And this can include harassing the victim through phone calls, text messages, social media, stalking, making face, um, sorry, making false accusations to friends, family, or law enforcement and using custody arrangements as a means of control. It's also like using threats against someone's life 
against their children's lives, um, threats of future violence to try to keep someone from leaving. Because we know that once someone does leave a relationship like this, it's the most dangerous time. Right. And we know he likes to also use suicide as a, as a threat to women who may be preparing to leave or, or making an attempt to leave. Yes. And so it makes essentially for post for post-separation abuse, it makes people stay in violent relationships, which is something a lot of people don't understand. It's like, I hear this all the time. Like, why do they stay? Why do they stay? And that's such a trope for me because I've heard it so many times, but also I feel like we kind of woke up to this as a society in like 2016, but people in Oklahoma are still asking me, why did she stay? And it's like post-separation abuse is usually the answer. Right. Um, Because if they try to leave, they, I, I think, in our first episode, Kate Waits, Professor Kate Waits describes this idea of like, there are a lot of reasons why people stay in situations they shouldn't stay in. Take all of those and then add the threat to your life. Right. Yeah. And then the fear of being alone to face this kind of abuse can just make leaving seem kind of like insurmountable and daunting. Yeah. And you know, I will just say that I go, I, I find myself cycling through, when we, you know, not not just with some of the stories on this podcast, but with all lots of our work on on uh, domestic abuse, cycling through the why did she stay? Why why I wouldn't do it that way? And then remind you know it's like a it's a it's so ingrained in mm-hmm. in our culture and society that those cycles play through my mind on occasion, and I have to catch myself and go, you know, why she stayed? Yeah, you you know the the having the ability to leave and and leave successfully without dying is it's a monumental task and post-separation abuse to your point is generally the reason that it's so so difficult and the fear of the unknown too it's like that whole thing about the devil you know is better than the devil you don't i think a lot of times and we say this in season one, that's uh, survivors know how to keep themselves safe. And oftentimes the ways that they keep themselves safe are staying. Right. And also to, you know, Angela Beatty, who's an expert on this issue to her point in season one as well, that like most times people want, just want the abuse to stop. They want the person that they love to just, to, what you said, I think in the first episode is like, be the person that they can see that they're capable of. The potential. The potential to be a good person and to stop doing this is also a factor in leaving. But in case you didn't know, I'm Leslie Briggs. And I'm Colleen McCarty. This is Panic Button, Season 2, Operation Wildfire. You're listening to Episode 7, Didn't Think It Could Get Worse. If you're just joining us, you'll want to go back and start listening from Episode 1. One of the most important things to remember about Jim is that he fancies himself a legal expert and works closely with attorneys. His sister was an attorney, and he, according to his friends, learned how to practice law from working with her. Through his work with PI and associates, he is always connected to an attorney who could represent him in exchange for his services on the PI consulting work. So in all these cases we're looking at, he was never short any legal help if he wanted to file a lawsuit. Conversely, his victims or survivors 
don't have the money to hire lawyers, don't know wh- which lawyers would be good, don't have access to just free legal help anytime they want. And so it ends up becoming a very huge imbalance of power for them. And anyone who's like embedded in the legal community in any ways that they're putting forward can inherently be in- intimidating for people who are not familiar with the courts or with legal processes. And his relationships with attorneys are also helpful in getting him favorable plea deals in some of these smaller counties where the attorneys that he has work with the judges and the prosecutors a lot. And it's just sort of this off-the-bat advantage that he has in any type of legal proceeding, I would say. Yeah, I think, you know, there's like a, a running joke from folks, like folks who who practice mostly in federal courts then find themselves in a state court, call it getting hometown. You know what I mean? You're, you're in front of the, the local judge who deals with the local bar. Those attorneys are in that courthouse every single day. And it's not to say that like judges are just not applying the law. Although mm-hmm. literally the other day you said, well, in federal court, we care about the constitution. Well, the truth hurts. Wake up. <laughs> Wake up, Oklahoma, do better. But I will say, like, so it's it's like these relationships, these relationships impact the proceedings for sure. Like, it just, not that the, the law doesn't get applied, but it can make, you know, if it's a close race, it can it can impact the, the final decision. Plus, it just makes it easier. It's like when your attorney goes in to talk to the prosecutor about your case, about trying to get you a deal, and it's a prosecutor they work with every day, and they know you always bring them reasonable deals, and they make recs to you because, you know, I did five recs from yesterday, I have to do a rec from today. Like, it's just, it ends up, as human nature does, it ends up being this, like, I'm familiar with this person, and this is what I did for them yesterday, and this is what I did for them the day before, and so that's what I am expected to do for them today. And if yesterday I gave his guy a six-month plea on deferred for domestic assault, then today I'm going to give his guy a six-month deferred. Yeah, yeah. You, you like naturally people fall into patterns, and then those patterns play out in the courthouse. We're no di- lawyers are no different from regular humans. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> no, but many survivors are afraid to leave violent situations. Right, as we're just discussing, that they know the system will struggle to separate them from their abuser, particularly if you're married, and particularly if you have minor children. That can just add to the difficulties. And oftentimes the system, as we have seen throughout this podcast, will fail to really hold their abuser to account or fail to stop their abuser from hurting them. Like on the one hand, you have this idea of accountability that this person needs to answer for what they did. But on the other hand, you just have like immediate safety issues that need to be dealt with. And so it's like the system is kind of shitty at both, unfortunately. And so, but when abusers, particularly abusers like Jim, continue to escape consequences, it continues to put survivors and and future victims in danger. And something we hear a lot, a lot from prosecutors and courts is that they can't prosecute cases where victims don't want to cooperate. They told me that it was likely going to go to jury, the the assault charge. And they said, you know, we're not going to let them buy or we're not going to reduce or whatever they were telling me. They weren't going to let him off or whatever. And then um, they called me on a Sunday and said, don't come to court tomorrow. We're not even going to hear the case. And then I got a call on Monday that said we settled or whatever. And he pled not guilty. 
and uh, or no, he pled guilty, and we reduced to um, what like anger management and something, whatever. I just like collapsed like right there. I can remember exactly where I was whenever I got that phone call. Go, go <laughs> off, girl. <laughs> you know how I feel about this, Colleen. We've talked about this. In this case, particularly, like let's take Kristen's case. I have never met a woman more ready to get in front of a judge and a jury and take this man to task. She's ready to tell the story of what happened in that driveway. And you had a prosecutor who had a victim who would testify. And what did that prosecutor do? Offered a plea the night before the jury trial and just told her not to show up. And what was the plea? 18 months deferred. So the the plea was 18 months months deferred. Now... He's on he's on that deferred sentence when the shit happens with Heather in Iowa and he gets arrested. Oh yeah. And so they then Kristen, being unwilling to give up, goes back to that prosecutor and says, Revoke. Revoke that deferred sentence because he's been arrested in Iowa. Hold him to account in Oklahoma. And you know what happens? More like, hey, you know what? Another state's already doing that, so I don't really want to. <laughs> Well, we get though we do get we do get a revocation. We do get a revocation. But do you know what the court sentence sentences him to? Is it the ninety days now? It's ninety days. So we've gone down from we've gone down eighteen months, eighteen months to ninety days, and then and then and then. You know how I feel about this. Ooh, it's very bad. <laughs> and then. He actually, so Jim, having access to those, those lawyers, allows him to do something that is pretty much unheard of in a case like this. You get 90 days in jail. Credit time served, buddy. Credit time served. So if he got arrested, he spent, he spent five nights in jail. It's only 85 days. He appeals that decision. I still have questions logistically about how all of this happened in 90 days. I think he probably... Was it retroactively? I think he probably... What probably happened was like a bond was posted and the like the sentence was stayed pending appeal. But the, he lost the appeal. However, however, in the interim, he goes to anger management for 52 weeks at some point. And he has a little certificate of completion that he presents to the court. And he goes in and he files a motion for judicial review. Okay, he's saying he goes back to the trial court, loses on appeal, goes back to the trial court, says, hey, judge, check out this certificate from 52 weeks of anger management. And and by the way, in the interim, they've started bullying me. These women have started bullying me on the Internet and calling me an abuser online. How that's so unfair. I deserve 30 days instead. And he gets it. And he gets it. And he fucking gets it. You know what's crazy about this? Like, we're putting all the pieces together for you and letting you build a puzzle yourself. But if you listen to episode two, you might feel like this is a little bit familiar because... It's a pattern. Jim's father, throughout the 1970s and 1980s and early 1990s, had... A lot of his sentences reduced through these types of post-conviction filings, and I don't think that's a coincidence at all. Every prosecutor I talk to about this, every single one of them, every single one of them. I mean, it's like they're trained to say it. Says domestic violence victims need to cooperate and prosecute their abusers. They walk away, they drop everything, they drop the POs, they want to go back together with him. This is a toxic relationship, and she needs to just balls up 
and go sit in front of a jury and testify against him if she really wants him to get time. And I would like to proffer to our listeners that that is bullshit. This, this, these cases prove it. Not only that, but have you ever seen a murder victim testify at a trial? Oh, they can't. They're dead. They're dead. There's also an entire type of prosecution, which I know is now kind of happening in Tulsa County, at least, called evidence-based prosecution, where you use all of the evidence, what a fucking concept, (laughs) to prosecute the person, and you don't need that person's firsthand testimony saying, he hit me. You can actually just use the pictures and the medical records, and you can fucking get somebody prosecuted like that. You don't have to force people to come back to the courthouse and go through this very traumatic process where they feel scared and in danger. Right. And it's it's also just this other form of victim blaming. We talked about it in the last episode, but our whole system is this whole thing about not only are you a victim of violence, but you need to be the person that's solely responsible for doling out the consequences. And if you don't want to do that and you don't want to balls up, then you can just expect him to get out and hit you again. And that's your fault. Fuck yeah. I mean, yeah. That's what this is. That is what this is. That's that's been their approach for the since whole the history beginning of, of time. Yeah, the whole history of, of like the criminal justice system in the state of Oklahoma since we were first formed. But again, to reiterate, these women are ready. Get them in front of a jury because they want to tell they want to tell the public what happened. And there's evidence. And there's evidence. Lots of photos. Lots of medical records. Lots of voicemails. Lots of text messages. Lots of emails. <laughs> The list goes on. But in addition to the problems that we have with how prosecutors approach this often, many of the victims who try to go to police to report what's happened to them only to be told, you know, we're not even, not only are we like not, you know, we're not only are we going to defer this person out, but we're not actually even going to make it, we're not even going to charge them. Mm-hmm. We're not going to pursue this in any way. When Kara tried to go to the police for her assault and rape, to report what had happened to them. And to be fair, we'll talk about this in a later episode. It was several months after it happened because he threatened her only child and told her that if she told anyone, she he would kill her child. But she goes to law enforcement only to be told that the officers were not going to bring him in for questioning because he just didn't want to go. Is that right? Yeah. They said he doesn't want to come in for questioning, so there's nothing we can do. That was from the police. And then she went to the district attorney and... Now you'll get to hear some from that meeting. When I was dropping him off, I told him I was going to go to the police station. And he said that he would kill if I did. He said, if I tell a soul, he will tell, he'll kill and my only child. And I 100% believed him um, because he, he was very much capable of killing. And so I didn't tell a soul. Um, I say that. It turns out I did. I told my sister. I told uh, my boss. Um, and, I, and other than that, I went on to teach piano and pretend like it never happened. After all of this happened with women, um, he told me he was going to kill So I didn't come forward. A um, few months later, I actually got... Um, he started reaching out to me um, and I actually would reach out to him because I kind of wanted a little bit of closure a little bit. Like I wanted to, I didn't want to meet him in person at all. I just wanted to be like, Hey, I know, I know you're an abusive motherfucker kind of thing. And so 
he would, he sent me a message one night that said, what's up? And I said, nothing. I'm just sitting in my parents' attic. And he, he sends me a picture of his new girlfriend that he's dating. And I said, she's beautiful, Jim. I hope that you don't beat her. And he said, she's not a cunt like me. So there was no beatings required. Um, and I thought, man, that's a good email. I need to hold on to that email. I feel like he's really confessing to something in this email, right? Um, so a few months later, Kristen, the girl that he kind of programmed me to hate, reached out to me on Facebook, and her words were, I got brave. And I, my words to her were, he hit me too. And that was the first person I'd ever told other than my sister and my boss um, that he'd hurt me. And then I found out he had also hurt Amber, his wife, that same week. So, um, and by hurt, like, Kristen was savagely attacked. Those were the kind of hurt that I was talking about. So when I went to the, I, I got the courage to go to the Sepulpa police. I filled out a police report um, to the best of my ability and looking back on it it's pretty spot on um, and it was the first police report that I had ever filed in my entire life at the time I think I was 35 years old 36 something like that um, and I'd never filed one before and I was real excited to get some justice against him and it you know I couldn't wait to, to watch his face once he got some charges pressed against him, you know, I naively thought that's what happened because I guess I watched too much law and order. Um, and, uh, that was, and then I, that same day I was giving, given, um, information to go for the Divis, the domestic violence intervention services counselor. And that's when I started going to group therapy with two other victims of his. What happened after you filed the police report? Nothing. Um, we continued to go to group therapy in Creek County, but after I, I, I would contact the detective, Amy Nichols, the one that was working on my case, um, I found out that um, Jim Lumen did not agree to come in for questioning. Um, and so eventually they just dropped the case because he didn't come in for questioning. Did they ever attempt to, I mean, did they ever follow up with you and ask you for what kind of evidence you might have or anything like that? Like that email that you held on to, like, did they ever do anything like that? No, they did not. Um, we had a meeting with Laura Ferris, the assistant district attorney in Creek County. And by we, I mean me, Kristen and Amber, so we were all victims of the same guy in their county, um, talking about the the how he had hurt all three of us individually in the same county. And her response, we had, we had an hour and a half inter interview with her, a meeting with her. She basically said that there needed to be some sort of video evidence of him hurting us to to get anything to stick. That was that was pretty much what I got out of that whole conversation. So survivors are not only fighting against their abuser, but they're fighting against the system to get it to care. 
And all of this fighting is extremely difficult to continue, especially in the face of this post-separation abuse. Jim, like many abusers, will set off on a crusade to ruin his survivors' lives. From threatening their jobs, to reporting them to their professional boards, and threatening to have them investigated by Child Protective Services. I tried to get a protective order that, that when I filed that, um, I tried several times. I tried the first time when I filed my original police report. I tried um, when he was, they, there were a bunch of all of a sudden things happening in front of my house, like nails in my driveway and um, uh, calls to DA. I was getting like reported to um, Department of Human Services for child neglect. Um, so I kept trying to get a protective order and they kept would not give me one. Um, finally, he... Uh, he reached out to my piano teacher, the, 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 the guy that owns the studio that I was teaching at, and told him I was a, a harm to small children, and that I was a serious drug user, and um, that children shouldn't be around me, and that he should fire me. But he sent that from his own name. I got a call that um, I, I was at work, and DHS had had a tip that I was that Chloe was neglected and that DHS was going to have a mandatory home visit and they were going to be there tomorrow. And I was like, or no, it was going to be at the end of the day. I mean, like, I don't, I wasn't even like in the, like, I wasn't even like in the system. Like, I mean, like I had to like, I had to, obviously this was my first report with the state with, um, so the DHS lady shows up to my house and and I were actually, I had a bunch of clothes on the couch and including like snorkels and we were packing for the Bahamas. And so I had to apologize for the clothes on my couch to the DHS lady because me and my neglected child were getting ready to go on a cruise to the Bahamas. So like within five seconds, she was like, oh, okay. You know, and she actually separated me and asked us questions. She asked what my worst form of punishment was and told her I sometimes I take away her YouTube and the lady um, closed out her investigation. I mean, obviously I didn't lose my kid, but. So his complaint to the board ultimately cost me my job with the state. You tried to get justice for it. I mean, how does it feel? Oh, like a never ending process where no one gives a shit. Post-separation abuse is difficult to process because your abuser continues to remind you that you're not safe. But another tactic Jim uses when post-separation abuse is not successful is legal abuse. Jim files protective orders on his own victims. He fabricates testimony and generally runs up legal fees in any proceeding he's a part of, which causes his survivors to run out of money and run out of patience trying to fight him in a court of law. Jim tried to file a protective order against me in retaliation several times, but never was granted one. Did you have to go to a hearing for that protective order? Yes, I did. By myself. Tell us about that. Um, I had to 
go in there. Um, I stayed by myself. One of the Divas ladies walked over there with me, um, but I did not have an attorney. Um, I had to... The judge basically told basically told me that I should not act so obsessive and crazy, but he's going to go ahead and grant me the protective order. Um, and, and so they did, they did give me the year protective order, but they told me basically stay away from him, stay out of his County. Don't, don't be trying to, um, it was basically like, don't bother him. He, when I filed the restraining order on him, he lawyered up, which caused me to lawyer up. Our restraining order hearing lasted three hours. The judge is finally like, listen, we're, I'm shutting this down. It's ridiculous. Because he kept coming up with thing after thing after thing. And the judge finally asked him one question, like, did this happen or something? And he's like, well, yeah. And judge is like, okay, you just wasted the court's time. But what he's doing is charging me $379 an hour for my attorney, yeah. which is when you start looking at the discoveries and stuff in my divorce, same thing. Uh, I was tortured the entire day. That's the day that he laid on top of me and bit me over and over and over again on the left shoulder, down the arm. That is ultimately what got my charges in Hardin County filed. Um, it was like three weeks, three weeks after that, two or three weeks that Jim was emailing me and I'm like, listen, just pay for your phone. I'll sign divorce papers. I don't have a problem with this. Cause I think he's an attorney. So why would I file attorney, file the papers? He can do it. And he would not, he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And you're going to have to pay for it. And I'm like, well, then fuck you. I'm not doing nothing. You're paying for this damn phone. He ended up calling Deputy Rom in Hardin County saying that I was harassing him. And then went in and showed him text messages and emails of me harassing him. So Deputy Rom calls me while I'm on a consultation. And I'm like, listen, I will be there tomorrow. And I'm going to show you the full emails and text messages so you can see them in content. Because this is what he does. He'll give you a little excerpt, and then I'm the bad guy. So we, I went and talked to Deputy Rom, and it started more conversation. By the end of the time, I by the time I left there, Deputy Rom is like, "Can I photograph your injuries?" And that's what got the ball rolling in Hardin County. Until that point, I, when I left him, I just wanted to be gone. I, I just wanted to be gone. I wanted to shut up. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Just let me walk away and be done with this. And then it was one thing after another that he kept doing. And then Karen and Kristen, Kristen were reaching out to me like, hey, we're here. If you need help, we'll help you through this. And I'm like, oh, you're just jealous bitches. You just want him. And at first it's hard because you do. You think these are the other women that want your man because that's all you've heard. They don't want him at all. They want to help you deal with what you're about to hit because it's a hard, solid wall. At the time that you and Jim were together, he was engaged in a lawsuit against Kara, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us um, about 
all of that. So remember when I said we'd spend days wrapped up in bed? Like part of it was he'd tell me about these crazy bitches that wanted him. He'd show me the messages between him and Kara and the emails and all this stuff to prove how she was the crazy one. So really priming that pump. And then he asked me to come down and go to court to testify against her. And my sole responsibility was just to say how this is affecting him emotionally and mentally and that it's consuming so much of his life and he can't function because she's so distracting and harassing. So that was my purpose for going down there. When I was down there, it was interesting to me because I got up in the middle of the night and he was in the living room with totes, two huge totes of evidence against her. So we go to court. I end up not testifying. I don't think they could see me at that time. But the whole murdering Kara thing came prior to the Oklahoma State Fair. Which now I think back and I'm like, oh, okay, this makes a little more sense. His thing was, he had been telling me that, you know, he's scared of what she's going to do. She's going to hire somebody to kill me, blah, blah, blah. He's like, so... Like, what do I do if if we're at the fair and she's walking towards me? How do I know she's not going to kill me first? Like, priming that pump. So his suggestion was that we carry, and that way, if we run into her at the fair, we can shoot her first. And by we, he means I, not him. So he, he planted that little, this is how we should do it. This is when we're going to do it to make it go away. Did you think when you went to the fair with him that you might wind up having to shoot somebody that day? No, because I didn't have a gun. Until until I left him, I had no firearms. I had no firearm training, nothing. And the Ankeny police officer that came and took the report the initial night when he threatened to come and bleed me out and kill me, he's the one that told me I should consider carrying. And then my divorce attorney for my first ex he's like listen you need to carry here's where you get your gun we know he did this with ember because she filed her protective order and then two weeks later he filed a protective order on her and he used the burn mark that he gave himself with the cigarette lighter in the car that's right so that's that pattern started decades ago so we mentioned also amber filed for protective order against jim back in 2014 And again in 2015. Also in 2015, Jim filed a protective order against Amber. Here is what Jim wrote in his protective order. Amber Lumen filed for a PO against me. She has continued stalking and harassing me since. On April 1st, 2015, she appeared in court on a matter not related to her. She was subpoenaed. (laughs) She had been subpoenaed by the court, Jim. On April 10th, 2015, she called from grandfather's phone. I did not answer. On April 15th, 2015, she was in court again in a matter not related to her. Uh, If you remember from episode three, we discussed how Amber was repeatedly called back because there were many continuances because Jim was filing frivolous pleadings and dragging out that custody battle. So here we even have him using his legal abuse in one case, using it in a a, a separate legal abuse 
from a frivolous PO in another case, complaining that she's showing up to a case that's not related to her. She's under subpoena. You know what a subpoena is? You it's have an, to you, show up. You better show up or I will hold you in contempt and I will arrest you and have you jailed. A court can do that. Unbelievable. 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 4-16-2015 calls me from her phone. I did not answer. <laughs> On April 30th of 2015, Jim Lumen is saying in his protective order that she left the courtroom after being dismissed from the PO hearing and then came back in the courtroom. This is somehow fodder for him to get a protective order. On May 5th of 2015, appeared in court in an unrelated matter. Again, isn't she also being, she's also coming to Kristen and Kara's PO hearings too. She may, that may be what he's referencing as well, because she's getting, she's offering testimony in that at this point now, these women have met one another and they have offered emotional support to each other. And they're, they are willing to come and testify about separate incidences of abuse. On May 6th of 2015, she is outside my house in her vehicle at approximately 5.20. On May 14th, 2015, at approximately 7.15 p.m., Amber Lumen and Kristen were parked in the elementary school parking lot adjacent from my mother's house. At and Then he lists the address. They were in Kristen's black Dodge Charger. I had been running errands with a friend of mine, Shannon Summers, and I had stopped back at my mother's home to pick up a few items. When we pulled into the drive... I noticed the ladies in the car, and upon leaving the residence, Amber and Kristen began following us. They followed us down Gilbert Street, then followed us left on Cato. By the way, there's like five streets in Cleveland, so it's kind of hard not to follow someone. <laughs> we drove to the Conoco gas station, where Amber and Kristen continued to circle and drive by. Upon leaving the gas station, Amber and Kristen were parked in a nearby parking lot and began following us again. We stopped at a stoplight at Broadway and Cato, and at which time Amber Lumen took pictures of Miss Summers' license plate. After turning at the light, we turned back east, where Amber and Kristen continued to follow. After some time, we lost them, and they were no longer in view. Amber and Kristen's friend Brett contacted Shannon via Facebook and began making numerous allegations about me, claiming I was an attempted murderer and continued to harass Mrs. Summers. Later that evening, Amber and Kristen's friend, Kara, began contacting Miss Summers via Facebook and began harassing her, making outlandish allegations and continued, and continued pages and pages of harassing comments for hours. Is this Jim's P.O. or Shannon's P.O.? <laughs> right, I know. I, <laughs> preach, sister. <laughs> Due to these actions by Amber Lumen and Kristen, I felt and still feel harassed, annoyed, intimidated, and feel that these actions are performed partly in an attempt to lure me into violating a protective order. Therefore, I am requesting a protective order be issued to the parties to prevent further stalking and harassment. And he signs it, Jim C. Lumen. So, again, I, I, so that's Jim's version of, of those events. I think that we should hear it from Kristen as she experienced it. So I walk in and ask the clerk about it, I guess. And she hands me the slip of paper and then says, if I have, you know, I can attach another paper. And she sends me over to the, um, the little area that's got all the law like, uh, books, uh, in it. And I 
start to fill it out. And so I, I fill it out. I think you guys have read the contents of that. And uh, I brought it back over to the clerk to file it. And I had, I had not put a relationship in there because I'm like, like no one knew he and I were dating, you know, we were friends and I really didn't think that it, I needed to share that. So I left it blank. Well, she must have knew because she grabbed it and wrote this relationship in there that I was, I think it says girlfriend or ex-girlfriend or something like that on there. I didn't write that. It's not my handwriting. But um, so that, you know, was my first clue, like something's off about what how this is working for me here. But uh, anyway, filed that and then... Um, I think, I can't remember if I came with attorney on my first hearing or not, to be honest. So I don't know if I, I came with that one the first time. And then it was just, you know, it was just a day where they said, oh, come back later anyway. Um, so then, then all of that started. So I don't know how many continuances there were. Um, I don't know how many, you know, and then during that time, um, that uh, I was, I don't even know if I had been granted, perhaps I had been granted mine and, uh, or at least the emergency one, I guess. And uh, then Amber and I are together out in Cleveland and he violates the protective order. But when we go to report it, to, or we reported it to the police and they took his side of the incident in our side and then they just decided to believe him instead of us and allowed him to have then a protective order in place against us after we already had one like from what I understand in Tulsa County it doesn't work like that but in Pawnee County it does so my Tulsa attorney was telling me you know it, uh, but that's not how it works in Tulsa. Like if there's already a protective order in place, they don't allow the other party to file one. But um, he, they did. And so we were, it was like more court dates, you know. How had you violated your protective order? Um, so Amber and I were together and then uh, in Cleveland and we had driven by his house because it was on the way back from uh, going up to the high school uh, and down. And um, then we went and parked in town and he saw us and pulled into where we were parked and he parked like right next to us and took a picture and then drove to the police station. And we drove right behind him, took a picture of their tailgate or their license tag to report that he just pulled up right next to us and he can't do that. So that's what we are there saying. And I guess uh, he filed a report to say that um, we were following him and that's how he got his picture. So because we both had pictures, I guess, um, they, the police officer, and there's an affidavit of the the police officer's statement that um, speaks to what he believed about, you know, Jim uh, saying that we approached him, I guess. 
So the police just went with Jim's side of the story. Yeah, it's it, and you know, and it's all hearsay, and we both have pictures. Um, but yeah, they allowed him the protective order, and then there's our new set of court dates. What was that like? Oh, it was uh, it was surprising, and to be in the middle of everything that I was already in and for that to come along, it was just, it, it, you know, I just wanted to stop going to court. Like, I was just tired of it. It was like more, it seemed like his game, like, and he was winning, you know, so it was exhausting. Some nights I have nightmares Dreams that won't come true Sit together, hand in hand, and I dream you love me too. But you wake up from apparitions, visions fade to black. Some nights I'm scared to fall asleep, cause I'll dream you take. There's no question Jim puts survivors through a lot emotionally, physically, and legally. These women a lot of times would find themselves losing a battle even though they were the victims of heinous violence. The turning of the tide only happens for them when they begin to discover the power in organizing themselves. A lot of this podcast is about the idea of whether or not survivors of abuse should band together to stop an abuser. For many of these women, banding together had negative impacts on their cases. However, there's no question that starting to talk to each other and getting organized helped them when they were in the most vulnerable positions against Jim. So, What's the first time you met Amber? I uh, met her, I think it was April 1st, the day of my protective order hearing. She drove up, uh, we met somewhere and she got in the car with me. And she rode with me to my first uh, EPO hearing following the assault. And um, that's uh, that's the first time that I met her. And then he also saw the two of us together there and was very shocked. You meet Kara. And then you when did you meet for the first time? I think it was, I think her and Amber were able to have lunch, but I wasn't able to join. And then they came over to my apartment afterwards. And that's when I met her. What's your initial impression? Oh my gosh, uh, both of these women, just so, you know, like uh, they're just beautiful, kind, loving women. Um, that was my first impression. So, and it, it was interesting because after he and I broke up, I didn't know like what story he was telling, like why this happened. He ended up meeting with another girl from who had reached out to us as a threesome, like right when we broke up, Kara, Christian, and Kristen and I. So she was kind of getting his side of the story and he was talking about how nasty I was and I wanted to have sex with the dog and blah, blah, blah. Well, pretty soon it came to light. She's like, that was the moment I knew that he was lying about everything because he had the exact same fantasy with me. 
that he told her that. So at that moment, she's like, aha. So tell us about the process of deciding to make that report, what it was like, you know, why did you decide to make the report? Because once I finally realized that this wasn't a man lost just trying to love a good woman and that this was a methodical conniving pattern of behavior from him, it became very apparent that, no, he needed to be held accountable for everything that he had done. When I did the reports and stuff, my life from the time I left him until probably April was a complete whirlwind. My kitchen table was full of papers, trying to figure out how to stop him from getting to the next one. It wasn't about jealousy. It wasn't about loving him. It wasn't about who was going to be in his life. This was about how do I make him accountable so that he can't get to the next one? I know that he called me a cunt a lot. Um, I know that he called me a crazy bitch a lot. And other than that, I don't remember his words because I just was done hearing him. Then there's Marcy. What happens with Marcy is particularly insidious, in my opinion. We see a certain type of manipulation that is the most dangerous kind of gaslighting. Marcy recalls that Jim Sr., who she cared deeply about, and Jim himself began selling her on the idea that she was wrong about having been beaten. Rather, she hit herself in the face with her own car door, and Jim, who is a very large man, fell on her while trying to get her into the house. Here's Marcy talking about the aftermath of her final assault and how doubt crept in when Jim and his family began to converge on her with a narrative that differed from her blurry memory. And so he, I know that at some point this story about you hit your face on a frozen car door and he accidentally fell on you getting you into the house became like a narrative that Jim was pushing. I think he told me that when, when I talked to him in the hospital. But I mean, I remember trying to get my car door open, but I don't remember if I ever got it open. I don't know if I did hit myself because I had four cuts on my face. That could have happened. I don't know. I don't know if that actually took place or not. Because the only thing I can come up with is the cuts that were on my forehead and then I had two by my eye, maybe from my keys. And I don't know. And so, well, can you tell me about what you remember from the hospital and Jim calling you and trying to talk to you? I remember him just telling me that, you know, he had bailed out of jail and then telling me what happened. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, maybe that did happen because I remember putting my key in the car and it, you know, it not opening. So that, that again, plus I'm, I'm still, they had me so drugged that I coded twice in the hospital. Mm. So 
what he was telling me and what everything's just boggled. Yeah. And so was, did you change your statement at some point, like, like an official statement to say that he had not beaten you or at at that time when, when we went to trial, I didn't think that he had after I was able to remove myself from his dad, him, his son, everybody pushing that and pushing that. And nope, this is what happened. This is what you told me. No, that, that, I don't think that's what actually happened. Because I have memories of laying in the floor. I have memories of going in the bathroom and being scared. So I, I, I think it was, I wouldn't say that they knew how to get to me because I don't know if anybody knows how to manipulate anybody, but I think they manipulated my memory. And it was all, it was all three of them. It was Jim himself, his dad and were all calling you and telling you this is how it went down? Yes. Tell me about his dad's effort to influence you. Uh, rather not. You don't want to talk about that? No. Okay. Do you, would you mind, do you want to talk about Um, I think is a good guy, but I think he's going to do anything that his father tells him to do. And he's going to back up anything that his father says and push that narrative. I, I believe that I text from the ambulance. Is that what he told you? Like, like, my face. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I think I texted him a picture of my face from the ambulance. I'm almost positive I did. And so, what was saying to you as far as like, like, what what had happened? Like, what was what was he saying to you? Basically, the same thing that Jim was saying. Well, this is what I was told, and same same story that Jim was telling. Did he say anything to you like you told me this is what happened? Uh, I, he did, but I don't remember which part it was about, if it was about the car door or if it was about falling up the steps, which we may have fallen up the steps. I don't know. I don't remember going in the house. If if you look at the pictures from the crime scene, on the front door, it almost looks like I had leaned up against it and my blood was dripping down it. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I don't remember leaning up against the door. 
Yeah. Well, on top of this being an extremely traumatic event, you were drinking for the first time in nine years, right? Yes. Which just like I mean, just I say that to say that this makes it hard. That makes it harder to remember every single detail. Well, in my blood alcohol, when they tested it at the hospital, it was almost three times the legal limit. What, like, what prompted you to decide to drink that night? I don't even remember. Yeah. I think it was just, let's go celebrate. I have control of this. I can, I can stop at any time, and I didn't. I've drank since then. I can drink a beer and be done. Mm-hmm. Or drink two beers and be done. I don't have a problem with it anymore. Like I had nine, you know, or however many years ago, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when I couldn't stop. Yeah. I'm able to, I'm able to control it now. Good. That's awesome. That's awesome. This gaslighting is so effective that Marcy goes on to tell the court that Jim never beat her. The problem is her injuries in her initial statements to first responders simply do not align with a narrative that includes smacking herself with her own car door and Jim falling on her once. When I was interviewing Marcy about her final assault, which you heard in episode six, I actually had an email pulled up on my own laptop, which was written by the district attorney in her case. In that email, there was a list of statements Marcy had made to different first responders on the scene. Marcy did not know I was looking at it while she recounted her assault to me. And the email was not sent to, the DA did not send that email to Marcy. I do not know if she has it. But Marcy's account to me matched those statements to first responders nearly exactly. And then, as you heard at the end of her recounting, she sort of begins to pivot to a discussion over the confusion as to whether Jim did fall on her or whether the car door did hit her in the face. And the reason I think this email is so significant is that it corroborates in real time, contemporaneous to the events, what Marcy initially said happened. And her story only changes after the Lumen Boys begin calling her and harassing her while she's in the hospital bed. And I don't know, Colleen, do you have, I don't, do you have some reactions to any of that? Yeah, when you first told me that this happened, that they all went to the hospital, and I, I think I remember hearing it in her interview, but then we talked about it again. It reminds me of a really famous case that everyone's talking about right now, which is the Murdaugh murders. Oh, right. Yeah. I don't know if our listeners listen to or have watched any of the documentaries about Alec Murdaugh. There's a case. It's a case in South Carolina in the in the, the low, low country, country <laughs> is what they call it. And many cases, actually, of a high powered lawyer there that has sort of a lot of suspicion and deaths suspicious deaths floating around him and this family. The first one of those, well, not the first one, second one of those was a young woman named Mallory Beach who was in the in a boat crash with Alec Murdaugh's son in, I think, 2018 or 2019. And she flew off the boat. He was drunk driving the boat, and she never came back to the surface again. Right. And the kids call first responders. They come to the scene. Everyone needs to go to the hospital. There's a lot of injuries. And there are, I think, three other passengers and Alex, two other passengers and Alex's son. So there are four of them. So three kids that that were drinking, 
that were on a boat in the middle of the night are now in a hospital after a huge trauma. And the first thing that this lawyer family does is they show up at the hospital. Right. They start talking to the police at the hospital and the, the everybody who's in their own hospital room about don't say anything. They start going into the rooms of the teenagers. We'll and get you out of this. And implanting facts. Yeah. So they actually tell the one boy, you are driving the boat. And they, they start manipulating the situation very early on. Yeah. And they figured out that this is a really easy way to skew an investigation because everyone's memories are so pliable in these kinds of situations. It's very easy to just inject certain things. Yeah. Because your memory during trauma is so shocked Mm -hmm. that it's really easy to tell somebody something happened during that period of time and them just, like, remember that that happened. Mm -hmm. And so... I don't know if they're consciously doing it or they're just lawyers that have been working for a long time and they know they need to start getting to the scene as soon as possible so that they can start figuring out the facts. But this is exactly what Lumen Sr., Lumen 2, and Lumen 3. So Lumen 3 um, actually did not participate in the implantation of the oh, okay. of, of the initial story, as I understand it. Okay, so we know... Lumen Sr., who Marcy... This is the part that is so... It's difficult. It's difficult because, I mean, we can... We'll just let you hear how Marcy reacted when I, when I brought up Jim Sr. I know you don't want to talk about, um, like, Jim's dad's efforts to, to influence you, but I did want to go back to, you know, you had mentioned that you were really close to him um, throughout y'all's relationship, and I was wondering if you would just share some of that with us if you're feeling comfortable with it. Um, I mean, he would come up and visit, and I, I, I just felt a bond with him, almost like a father figure. Um, he would, like I said, he would call and check on me every other day, at least once, twice a week. You know, he would text me or call me and ask me if I was okay, if I was good. This is after Jim had been arrested and we weren't allowed to be in the same house or whatever. I mean, he... I felt close to him. I... I I can honestly say I love that man. Yeah. And I just... I hate that... I understand that's his son. But for a man to support a man that does something like that repeatedly to women, I have a problem with. So it's been it's been hard on me. Yeah. Because I I truly, truly cared about him. I adored him. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had still having programmed in my phone as Dad Fuzzy Wuzzy, because that's what the girls called him. And to me, I called him Dad. So, yeah, like lots of high emotion around she that considers, She considered him like a father. Yeah. And for him to show up at the hospital under the guise of a doting father-in-law. Or I think probably via phone more than physical presence. Or via phone. Yeah. 
he's he is talking to her. He was in the immediate aftermath. And he was to her as somebody who's attached to him now as a father figure, he's trying to be consoling, trying to make sure she's okay. But let me just talk about the extent of her injuries real quick, because this idea that it was, so the narrative sort of becomes, well, Marcy was trying to open her car door and it's the dead of winter in Iowa. And she pulls on the car door. It's stuck with ice and she's pulling with such great force. It hits her in the face, causes these lacerations like all over her face and breaks her nose. And then Jim's trying to help her in the house and they slip and fall and he falls on top of her. And that's how all those ribs get broken. But she has four separate lacerations in, in across. There's like a cheek one. There's several on the forehead and then on the other side of the face. Her nose is broken. One of her cuts is so deep that it has perforated the epidermis and is down to the connective tissue between the muscle and skin, which would take a lot of force, having spoken to a couple of folks that work in trauma ERs about these injuries. Um, it's my understanding it would take some serious force to get through that, that like your get through all of your skin layer down to your connective tissue. Mm-hmm. And like I said, broken nose and she has four buckle fractures, which are fractures where the bone doesn't crack all the way through, but sort of the kind of buckles out on one side. And then she has one completely displaced rib that's which snapped off, broken off. Yeah. She has three bulging discs in her back and she has um, a compression fracture in her thoracic spine, which are all um, one of the <laughs> trauma nurses I spoke to actually said that sounds like somebody who was in a car wreck more than, you know, Her exact words to me were like, the force it would take from opening the car door on one event, like on one hit, would be just, you wouldn't be able to do that to yourself. It's not possible. And, you know, we have to talk about the fact that they were drunk. And Marcy was drunk for the first time in nine years. And... You, get, you might be listening to this and saying, well, she changed her story and she was drunk. How can we possibly trust her? I guess I would just go back to her statements to IMSA and the police when they got there and her recounting to me. I mean, that's the story that came out of her naturally. And it's not until the end that she gets to this idea of like, well, but then this kind of gets brought up. Also, can I just say, like, kudos to the Iowa district attorney that, like, pushed through this because, you know, on face value, if you have a heavy caseload and you're just kind of, like, making it, it would be easy to just say, yeah, she fell. Right. And here you have a victim who sort of starts to recant, kind of, in a way. I mean, she does tell the court, look, he didn't beat me. And then she says she doesn't want him to go to prison on the stand. Does she say that? At the sentencing hearing. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, still clearly very under his spell. Right. At that time. But, like, this is kind of what we keep hearing from DAs is it's like, I don't want to bring these charges because I don't want to put that person up on the stand. They're not going to be reliable because they were drunk or they're not going to be reliable because of this. But also, they still like him right now. Yeah. Or after all this time they're supporting passed. him, right? Yeah. Yeah. And... So what, am I going to risk putting them on the stand and then have them, like, take his side or flip on me? Yeah, and luckily in this case he pled. Yeah, let's also make sure we tell everybody that he did plead guilty to this assault. Yeah, and got a 10-year sentence for which he served 15 months. 
Yeah, I think it's we keep hearing between 13 and 15. It was September to December of the following year, so that's 15. Yeah. But I guess what I want to say is the reason that drunk, sorry, real quick, the reason that drunkenness also comes into play is I was also talking to a trauma nurse that I know, and she was like, well, when we see people who have had a traumatic physical event and they've been drunk, usually their injuries, generally speaking, the injuries aren't super severe because when you're drunk, your body doesn't tense up before the force of an impact. So you would expect to see not from a single, from him falling on her a single time, you have four buckle fractures and a completely displaced rib, three bulging discs and a thoracic spine injury. It's like, that's heavy, heavy, heavy trauma. A couple of drunken people falling on each other in the snow wouldn't cause that. No, you know, no. Also just one more remark and you can put this wherever you want, but. The only people saying that she had multiple stories are the people who were implanting multiple stories in her mind at the time. Right. So when you're the cause of somebody recanting or somebody having multiple stories, you don't get to say they're not credible anymore. Right. Like that's the, that is the other thing that's so insidious about this is that this is like the ultimate emotional manipulation by Jim, right? It's an effort to get her to be very confused about what happened to her and to recant and make her less credible and then say, look, she's not credible, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's just like uncool, man. Yeah. I think it's like also part of like the legal abuse that nobody sees. Yeah. It's like he knows what impact this inconsistent testimony or inconsistent statements will have on her case. Right. It's definitely a version of the legal abuse. Yeah. That's a very good point. So in any event, I mean, you guys have to make up your own mind about what you think happened to Marcy, but the medical records, actually, I'll just end on this note, the medical records note that the IMSA tech who arrived, who brought Marcy to the hospital said that the scene looked like a, quote, murder scene. There was so much blood. That was in the notes of the paramedic that responded to the scene. Mm -hmm. And I read that yesterday and I remember just being like, lots of blood. And the blood was outside and inside? Yeah, I'm sure, because he complains that she's bleeding on the carpet at one point. And it's all over the front door. Okay. And I guess if if we're following with his story, the bleeding started when she fell and he fell on her outside and then continued when she gets walked inside? Or it happened when she hit herself in the face with the car door, broke her nose, and p- put four different lacerations on her face. She did that to herself. Yeah, the the narrative as I understand it is, and please reach out to me if I'm wrong, but the narrative as I understand it is that um, she was trying to get that car door open to her car and it was icy and then it popped open and hit her in the face. Four lacerations, one that perforated the connective tissue, uh, down to the connective tissue, and then a broken nose. I mean, that would take a lot of force. Well, this, like, look. If you, you can believe us or not believe us, whatever, but the system in Iowa certainly didn't believe that that was possible. Right. That's true. They prosecuted him for inflicting severe injury. That's right. And so that he pled guilty, he pled guilty to a lesser charge. Of course. And that's the story of Marcy's assault. But you can see that the legal abuse aspect of it is really very insidious. These survivors have gone through so much. We aren't going to be able to capture it all in this podcast. 
but you can see why we decided to focus on Jim's cases to educate the broader public about abuse. His tactics hit all of the buckets of the most common behaviors that abusers use to control their victims. Legal abuse is one of the most difficult behaviors to curb because as citizens of the U.S., we all need to have free and equal access to the courts. It will be difficult for a judge to know the motivation behind a particular filing or case. This issue highlights particularly why the court system may not be the best venue in which to cure and heal the harm caused by domestic and family violence. Next week on Panic Button, we bring on four experts in the fields of restorative justice and law enforcement to discuss what can be done about these types of offenders and what can society do to reduce the harms and trauma created by domestic violence. After we hear from the experts, we'll dive back into the story and hear how these survivors came together in the name of justice but were broken apart by Jim's constant manipulations and promises. When you join a quest to take down a monster, can you avoid becoming a monster yourself? You can find links to pictures, documents, and all our sources in the show notes of this episode. These cases serve as a reminder of the devastating consequences of domestic violence and the importance of seeking help if you or someone you know is a victim. If you are in immediate danger, please call 911 or your local emergency number. For confidential support and resources, you can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Thank you for listening to Panic Button, Operation Wildfire, and for joining us in shedding light on the importance of ending domestic violence for good. I'm Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs. Panic Button is a production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studios in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Our theme music is by Guillaume. Additional editing is provided by The Wave Podcasting. Our music supervisor is Rusty Rowe. Special thanks to our interns, Kat and Allison. To learn more about Oklahoma Appleseed or donate to keep our mission of fighting for the rights and opportunities of every Oklahoman a reality, go to okappleseed.org.